welcome to Worldly from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham. I'm here with Jen Williams, as always, and a frequent guest of ours, Alex Ward, a writer on our foreign team. We've heard a lot recently about immigrants and asylum seekers in the United States, but this is a global problem, and the ongoing refugee and migration crisis is transforming politics across Europe. A few governments, most prominently the Hungarian one, have been feuding with Germany over its openness to refugees. And in the last few days, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has made a radical policy shift in the anti-migration direction. I actually just spent a week in Hungary reporting on this story and other ones. So today on the show, we're going to talk all about immigration and asylum to Europe. But first, Jen, let's start on the basics of Europe and immigration. What has been happening and why is this such a big deal? Yeah. So for the past several years, um, there was this massive flood of people coming into Europe from places like Syria and Afghanistan in particular, as well as um, all across Africa and kind of beyond, um, in part driven by, you know, the Syrian civil war, the war in Afghanistan, climate change, things like that. So you had this massive kind of flood of refugees that just suddenly kind of spiked trying to get into Europe. And at first, the EU in general was was fairly open, right? So they had this kind of open border policy. They were taking in lots of refugees. Then there was this massive right-wing backlash against migrants and against political parties and political leaders who were advocating for this more open border policy. And Hungary basically led the charge and built two border fences to keep refugees from crossing the border into Hungary from Serbia, which actually isn't an EU country. So I was there about a week ago, and and I met a refugee in Hungary named Ibrar, whose story really illustrates what closing borders means for actual people and this restriction on migration and why it matters. So I met him in Budapest at a place called Central European University, which is actually under attack by the Hungarian government for being essentially too liberal and democratic. Uh, Ibrar is completing a high school equivalent degree there for migrants. And picture a 19-year-old guy uh, with a very fashionable haircut, thin on the sides and long on the top, and and a broad, really winning smile. Ibrar is Hazara, uh, and there are people who are being persecuted in Pakistan. In the city where we were living, militant groups were killing Hazara people on the basis of their beliefs and their ethnicity. His family couldn't afford to go with him when he fled this violence. So he left by himself and he took a dangerous route through Iran, Turkey. Then he crossed the Mediterranean in this little boat uh, on his way to Serbia. The goal of all of this was to get into Hungary through Serbia, the closest access point, given that Hungary's in the EU and it, it would accept people. But by the time he got there, Hungary had put out these big border fences with barbed wire and armed guards designed to block people like him from entering the country. So he waited outside of this fence for, for months in giant UN-built tents that had about 200 people in them. He has an interview with the Hungarian authorities, waits two more months, and then they take him not quite across the border, but just across it in a thing called a transit zone where they hold refugees while they're waiting to decide whether or not to grant them asylum. In transit zone, like you, you, you could say you're in a kind of detention center. First of all, you're not allowed to go outside. From outside, people are not allowed to come inside to meet you. In the transit zone, he had no internet. His phone was useless without a Hungarian SIM card, so he couldn't talk to his family or any of his friends, and they didn't give him anything to do. 86 days, nearly three months. Fully uh, disconnected from outside world. You're living there. You're just getting two-time meal, two-time a day, and uh, 
other than that, nothing. When I was at the border, people who were waiting there to get across told me that they had recently put in Wi-Fi into the transit zones, but that that's new. And Ibrar remembers it as the worst part of his entire long journey, even the dangerous boat ride across the Mediterranean. Yeah, it was a kind of nightmare. <laughs> I, I survived it like three months there, but if, if I think now about that, I'm like shocked how I spent that three months there in that situation. Do you think they intentionally made it miserable? Probably yes, because mo- most of the the time, like if you are if you are like asking any question from social workers, not police but social worker, those social workers were saying, okay, the the gate towards Serbia is open twenty four hours for you. You could go back. Just in case the subtext there wasn't clear, Ibar is saying the social workers were telling him the gate towards Serbia is open twenty four hours for you. You could go back, and that's the social workers. It's very clear that they're trying to push people back across the border and not let them in. And even now that he's in Hungary and he's been admitted, things are tense. The government just ran for re-election in April and the campaign centered around blocking migration and anti-migrant rhetoric. And Ibar said that that made the situation for migrants in Hungary scary. Everywhere people were like talking about these topics. So on the train, I was on the on the bus. If if you are opening Facebook, so there are ads. Yeah. <laughs> if you're turning on the television, so like there are the news is, and yeah, it was like quite uncomfortable for me. So Jen, Alex, put this in context. Explain how this anti-migrant sentiment, you know, that Ibar experienced, is shaking up Europe and and starting with Germany, arguably the most important country in Europe today. Yeah, so it's it's not actually just Hungary. Like you said, it's it's in Germany. So just recently, you have the German interior minister who basically threatened to go rogue, right? So he's part of Angela Merkel's ruling coalition, the German chancellor, Angela Merkel. And he basically said, look, I'm sick of this. I'm done. We're going to shut down the southern border. And Merkel's like, no, we literally can't do that. We can't do that without an agreement with the EU. So I'll go talk to them. So she goes and talks to the EU and they had this like marathon meeting. You have like the heads of all these different European countries, including from Hungary. Right. And she's in there like trying to convince them to do something. She's in there basically begging like, hey, my government's going to collapse if I don't give them something. So they came to this really kind of squishy, vague deal where they essentially agreed to build these like migrant centers around Europe in other countries, not Germany and agreed to work together. So she comes out after this like marathon, like hours and hours long meeting. And she's got like bags under her eyes. She's exhausted. She's like stumbling out. She's like, all right, I got this deal. Uh, it's, it's not great. It's a step forward, but here we go. Right. And it seemed to have kind of at the moment sort of pacified part of the party. So the spokesman for that kind of sister party of hers that was in her coalition comes out and says, okay, well, we heard some good things. That's good. And then Hungary pulls out of the deal, which is a massive issue for Merkel, because after all these hours of negotiations, after putting her entire political life, you know, life on the line, she now has to go back to the EU and try to strike up another deal. And it's really kind of insane 
like how anti the EU this is, right? Like it's a it's an entity that has been so open to immigration for so long. It is part of its four freedoms is effectively to allow the people to move around as they will. And so for this to kind of be a sticking point, for this to kind of maybe take down a German government is, is really just a striking thing in the history of European politics. Right. So Merkel, like this deal collapses that she worked on, right? So she goes back home and she's like, all right, look, what do I have to do with, to, you know, with her own party? Like, what do I have to do to make you guys happy here? Right. And they essentially come to this deal, which is stunning. And Merkel agrees to build border camps, to build camps on the border and to turn away some migrants. And that is a huge deal, right? Merkel is like the one who is the beacon of letting in refugees and, and making you know the EU open border policy. And because of this domestic political turmoil and because of Hungary and everything, she ends up essentially taking this hard kind of right turn and abandoning a lot of her principles and going, all right, fine, we'll We'll build camps on the border. And this is what's scary because this sounds so familiar to what the, you were just talking about with Ebra in your interview, right? Like, is, is Angela Merkel sort of, again, this standard bearer willing to make another kind of camp that sounds very much like the one in Hungary? Well, no, it's literally the same thing in terms of the name, right? They're transit zones. And the idea is that you hold people for there while their claim is being decided. It's it that In that sense, it's the same thing as the Hungarian system. The question is whether or not they're implemented in the same way. The goal in Hungary not explicitly, but more or less explicitly, as Ibar said, was to keep people out to prevent them from getting in. In Germany, uh, Merkel is claiming that everyone's everyone will be processed within 48 hours. And so a decision will be made and they won't have to stay there for three months and suffer and be told the door out is right over there and so on. But, you know, it's different than Germany's previous policy of unconditionally letting people in and just saying, you get to stay here while we decide on your asylum claim. And they don't really turn people away, or they didn't in the past. They wanted to let people in and rescue them. And now, you know, they want to send people to other EU countries, or if they can't find another EU country, they claim to have an agreement with Austria, where they'll go to Austria. But now Austria is saying, no, 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 we never agreed to that. It is such a reversal. It's hard for me to overemphasize how different this is than the way Germany has been in the past. Right. And so, you know, on on the plus side, right, her government's probably stable for the time being, right? Like they made this deal and that's why Merkel caved. But in the long run, being you know, radical right light is not really the best look for Angela Merkel. Right. It's not politically effective either because then alternative for Germany or AfD as they're referred to in Germany. Um, the far right party. Yeah. Is just going to say, well, if you guys don't like immigrants, we don't like immigrants even more. And we're going to do even more to keep out migrants and refugees and so on. Historically, parties that cave like this don't do very well at holding up against far-right parties and elections. You need to define a contrast. But it seems, at least from Merkel's point of view, that public opinion had shifted so far decisively against migration that she had no choice but to come to some kind of compromise. Just for maybe like a second, I think it's worth pointing out just how, again— historically weird this is. Like in 1952, when the European Union sort of project started, it was all about bringing people together, allowing people to move within the entire continent. The whole reason for this to exist was so that like war would no, no longer break out. If Europeans just kept meeting with each other or even accepting migrants, then everyone would kind of start being okay. The fact that this has started to change, that borders are starting to close, that European politicians are starting to move further right, like this goes completely against decades and decades of policy. There is, to be said, the 2003 Dublin regulation. And what this does is effectively any migrant that comes into Europe 
they have to be in the first country they arrive in while they seek an asylum claim. And that gets completed. So a lot of these countries, you know, use that as an excuse. Like they first came in through making it up Greece or Italy. So they have to go back. Like this right. has been used throughout Europe to push people off. And that's but now, what the interior minister was trying to say. Exactly same, right. Same argument. Right? Exactly right. And so in, in 2015, Germany waived that for Syrian migrants, right, escaping the war. And so now what we have is a situation where maybe Merkel went too far for her public. But even so, like, let's be clear how against the progression of history it has been for Europe of the last 70 years. And what that illustrates is that this anti-migrant backlash isn't just about refugees. It's not just about the literal people coming in. Right, because the numbers have actually dropped off. Right. Right. That's the thing that we haven't mentioned is that, like, all of this political turmoil is happening right now, but the numbers have dropped off significantly. There are still migrants and refugees who are suffering and who are at these borders, but the numbers are nothing like we saw at the peak. What this means is despite the decline in people trying to get into Europe, the issue is still politically salient. People really care about this, and and honestly, they care in the scary direction. They care about keeping migrants out and keeping Europe, far-right parties will say this openly, Christian and European, and we all know what that means. White. Yes. And so it links up to a kind of authoritarian populism and provides fuel for it, right? It's not just we purely want the numbers to go down because they already have. Right. It's that we want a certain cultural vision of what Europe needs to be or should be, and we are using migrants as a scapegoat to be able to push and advance that agenda. And the fact that Merkel, who is the one, I mean, there are others, not, you know, there are other politicians or other political parties. There are just regular people who are fighting against this too. But Merkel was like the symbol, right? She was like the last bastion of this earlier kind of more open, more liberal, more honestly kind and humane kind of policy. And the fact that we just saw her finally kind of cave, that's stunning. And that sends a huge signal that, like, the populist right-wing anti-immigrant sentiment is kind of winning. And it bothers me that the U.S. is not helping in this case. I mean, you even had Trump basically tweet against Merkel during this whole crisis and and stoke this fear even further. And we're not accepting as many migrants, you know, refugees as we could be. Uh, it's like this is this is sort of the moment where the West was supposed to step up, right? This was the time, and we have completely failed. And it's left people like Merkel like just waving in the wind. And that I think is a perfect note to end this uh, gloomy and sad conversation on. Uh, And now, after the break, we'll move to something that maybe is a little more hopeful. Maybe? Everyone has mundane tasks that they could use some help completing, right? Generally, these tasks take time away from more important things that you need to do. Finn is a high-quality, on-demand assistant that handles the administrative aspects of life so that you can focus on what matters most. Thousands of busy professionals already rely on Finn, to handle tasks like scheduling meetings, booking travel, buying gifts, and even more complex jobs like creating a website, planning an event, or even performing market research. Finn takes care of administrative tasks so that you can make better use of your time and be more productive. I've used it and it saved me so much time. Finn can make calls, it can send emails on your behalf, pay bills, remember important dates, and I always forget important dates. And it just automatically gets things done for you. It saved me a ton of time. Finn is always available on demand and you only pay for what you use. Once you try Finn, you're going to love it as much as I do. I know. We've arranged for all of you to try Finn for free. Just use our link, finn.com world. 
That's fin.com slash world to try fin for free. Fin.com slash world. Have you ever wondered about life in outer space? Have you seen an unidentified flying object, maybe over your house or in your bedroom? Well, then you'll want to watch the latest episode of Fox's show on Netflix. Uh, it's called Explained, and each episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one subject. They've covered the stock market, K-pop, genetic engineering of human babies, and this week, in science fiction territory, extraterrestrial life. Is it real or is it not? Who knows? You'll find out on this week's Explained. The episode breaks down the math behind the Fermi paradox. It moves our understanding of the search from extraterrestrial life from the world of science fiction into the world of science. It explores the basic question behind the search. Are we alone? So go find it on Netflix. You can search for Vox or go straight to netflix.com slash explain. That is netflix.com slash explain. It's good. You'll watch it and you'll love it. And then maybe learn more about aliens. So on Sunday, Mexico held one of its biggest elections in its entire history, and they elected a leftist, populist, anti-establishment president. His name is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, but most people just call him AMLO for short by his initials, A-M-L-O, AMLO. So here he is addressing a huge crowd of thousands of his supporters on the night that he won. Los tres principios básicos, no mentir, no robar. So what he's saying there is we will follow three basic principles, not to lie, not to steal, and not to betray the people. So AMLO has actually run for president twice before and lost. But this time around, he won in a landslide. He got 53% of the vote. So what's going on here? Why did he win? Mexico had been for a long period of time a one-party state. Uh, functionally. It was a democracy, but there's an establishment party, the PRI, that won the vast majority of Mexican elections. And the problem with one-party states is that entrenched parties tend to develop some bad habits when they control power for a really long time. And in the PRI's case, there was a major corruption problem and a major violence problem because the party was partly compromised by the drug cartels that have become so powerful in different parts of Mexico. Right. So between the massive institutionalized corruption and the tremendous amount of violence, 25,000 people were murdered in Mexico in 2017, probably the highest number ever recorded. Uh, and that seems to be getting worse, not better. People are like, enough. Enough with the PRI. And it's time to try something new. And so AMLO it is. Right. So AMLO blames the violence on, uh, you know, what he called the mafia of power. So like you were talking about, the the kind of corrupt connections with the cartels, with these, especially in local areas, these families, essentially like crime families run the state, they run the region, they run politics, they run the police. And AMLO comes in saying, I'm going to kick all of these guys out, right? So he essentially managed to capitalize on this huge wave of exhaustion and disgust. And he won in a massive landslide. He also had formed this brand new party um, that answered only to him. So it's the Movement of National Regeneration, or Morena for short. It's the worst acronym. So just to go back, when I said this is a massive historic election, right, it was huge not because of just like the stakes, but it was literally the number of seats. So there were 3,500 seats up for grabs from the, the federal, state, and local level. And that includes the entire Congress, 500 seats in Congress. So they not only were electing a new president, they were electing an entirely new Congress and then, you know, mayoral races, local elections. And AMLO's Morena party did really well in those elections too. So 
they actually won a large majority in both houses, which means he'll actually have a lot of power to implement his agenda. Yeah, I, I mean, it's insane how much power is going to be under this one man. I'm going to do my best Tom Friedman impression for one quick second. I was in Mexico City last year. Oh, did uh, you talk to your cab driver? I did. Ah! <laughs> and now I understand Mexico. Go on. Yes, no, exactly. No, I was in, uh, it was my bachelor party. We did, we were Mexico City. Ubers are really cheap. So we went to a lot of places and I and kept talking to, to the Uber drivers. And I was basically asking about the election, how they were feeling. And I cannot stress enough at least in the Uber driver community, how against the PRI they were, how against Enrique Peña Nieto they were, the current, the current president, president. Um, how how much change they wanted change, el cambio. That was the kind of word I kept hearing over and over and over and over again. And so it did not shock me, based on the small sample size that I talked to, that something like this would happen. I am shocked, though, at how strong a response it was, uh, how strongly they went against decades of Mexican history to put the PRI out again, really kind of just out on its ass, to go to a completely new party with an acronym which literally stands for brunette or, if used in a weird way, tan lady. Um, but Ooh, like, that's the what tan Morena, lady party. Yeah, that's, that's what Morena stands for. So, like, it's just odd. Anyway, point is, like, this is just a weird historical moment for Mexico, and it the implications are staggering. But what's weird is that his actual agenda is pretty vague. Like, his big entire push is anti-corruption, right, is this, we're going to kick out the mafia of power. But mostly that is actually focused on his own personal pledge to lead by example. That's basically all he has. So he's promised, I, I hope he pinky promised, to be totally uncorrupt himself. He says he'll cut his own salary by half. He's going to live in his modest middle-class home in the south of the city rather than in like the luxurious presidential palace. He even promised to sell the presidential plane and take commercial flights. An interviewer asked Amlo during the campaign, okay, so you sell off your plane. What are you going to do if the flight's delayed? And you're like, I don't know, on the way to a meeting at the UN. And he replied, I'll be late. This isn't just anti-corruption, though it is, and he is, by all accounts, a pretty personally uncorrupt guy. Right, right? that's the he's perception, pretty, right? He's an yeah. honest guy. It's not just an image. He's also a pretty staunch leftist, right? Somebody who's promised a lot of redistribution. It's not really clear how exactly. You know, he's somebody who really is a shakeup of the Mexican political system and, frankly, the entire North American political situation because you already had some tense U.S.-Mexican relations to begin with. And now you have a guy who is uh, anti-corruption and aggressively left-wing dealing with Donald Trump when it comes to NAFTA and migration issues. Right, which is weird that, you know, a lot of people, I think, even the New York Times, like, were like, is he the Mexican President Trump? And everyone's like, no, stop it. It's the opposite of that. Right. So, I mean, to be fair, there are some things that are similar, right? He's anti-establishment. He is a populist. He's pretty nationalist, but he's a leftist. He's also a longtime career politician. He was once mayor of Mexico City, right? He's been in politics since the 1970s, part of like revolutionary kind of leftist socialist parties. So he's not a reality TV star, right? He's not like a businessman. You know, like you said, in terms of like the redistribution policies, again, that's really vague on what he's going to do. He's essentially saying like by cleaning out the corruption, getting the, you know, the Mexican government spending down to a reasonable level, we'll take all that money and we'll give it to the poor people. And that scared a lot of 
business people, right? Like they're like, uh, okay, no. <laughs> to be fair, screw the business people. I'm I'm in for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. But yeah. Color me skeptical that this is the guy who's gonna solve a lot of Mexico's problems, though. Right. Let, let's let's start with one. When he lost an election, he held a fake inauguration ceremony for himself. Correct. Um also this guy, if he believes that taking commercial flights will end the entrenched problems in the Mexican government, I think he's mistaken. This is a place where political candidates die during elections. This is a place where cartels govern governments and large parts of the country. And assassinate journalists and, and assassin if they even think about reporting on them. Yes, journalist friends of mine who are in the country, some of them American, get harassed from really high levels from the government even being brought into a presidential palace for, the for like, shakedowns. I mean, this is a really— messed up place right now. I hate to say that. I'm a big fan of Mexico, but it's got really big problems. And of course, it's nice to give the rhetoric of we'll give to the poor, we'll help out, um, all in corruption. But these are systemic long-term issues, and it's hard to believe that AMLO can solve it simply by being a man of the people. I hope he can, but I'm very skeptical of this. Well, right. I would hope that selling the presidential plane isn't the sum total of the well, reforms of course not, that he's like, promising. Again, of course not, he but, hasn't like, really but said yeah, much else. I don't know what he's going to do. No one really knows what he's going to do other than I'm just not the PRI. Right. I'm just not the entrenched people. And so I think we're going to close there uh, on a note of uncertainty and possibly hope or skepticism in Alex's case. I, I want to thank both Jen and Alex, of course. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, our other producer, <laughs> Jillian Weinberger, uh, our social media manager, Julie Bogan. Subscribe on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and check out any other Vox Media podcast that you're interested in. We have good ones. Uh, and that's it for this week. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you again next week. 